Laudetur Jesus Christus. Praise be Jesus Christ. This is Matt Gaspers, Managing Editor of Catholic Family News, and I'm joined as always by my friend and colleague, Dr. Brian McCall, who is the Editor-in-Chief of CFN. Hello, Brian. I hope you're doing well this uh, third week in February uh, as we've entered into the season of Septuagesima. Yes, we're inching closer to Lent. Yes, uh, so yes, doing well, having a good busy but a good week. All right. Yes, uh, it has been a busy week on multiple fronts, as we will find in our show this week. Uh, our stories are going to include a couple of new papal documents known as uh, motu proprios issued on the Pope's own initiative. They're apostolic letters of a, I guess you could say, a legislative uh, nature. One concerns the structure of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and the other is in regard to certain um, parts of canon law. So secondly, we're going to look at a, a recent low-profile meeting uh, between the Superior General of the Society of St. Pius X, Father David Pagliarani, and Pope Francis, which apparently took place, um, I think, on February 12th is what, what it, the reports are saying, uh, if I'm recalling that correctly. We're also going to look at some updates about the Freedom Convoy in Canada, uh, things are ramping up. The temperature is rising, you might say, with that situation because President, or excuse me, Prime Minister, as an American, I'm used to saying President, uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau invoked the so-called Emergencies Act in response to the ongoing demonstration. And it's kind of, it's not the equivalent of martial law, but it, it's approaching that. So we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah. <clears throat> And then finally, a very positive story to end today, an interview of a young man that some of you viewers, football fans might be familiar with, Harrison Butker, who is the starting kicker for the Kansas City Chiefs. And the interview is about his love of the traditional Latin mass. He regularly serves the traditional mass and his thoughts about Tradiciones Custodes. So that's mm -hmm. what we have for you today. Uh, we are coming to you live on Thursday, February 17th, the year of our Lord, 2022. And it is the Thursday after Septuagesima. There is not a saint assigned uh, for today on the traditional Roman calendar. So the, the readings for Mass are a repeat from the, the preceding Sunday, Septuagesima Sunday. And I thought to set the tone, the, the spiritual tone for today's show, as we do at the beginning of each episode, we try to spend a few moments pondering the things that are above, as St. Paul says, and grounding ourselves in the spiritual riches of Holy Mother Church. I just want to read the first few verses from the epistle, definitely relevant for our final story today involving a, a sports figure. So St. Paul, as he does in multiple places in the New Testament, compares the Christian life to the, the life or the discipline of an athlete. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. He says, Know you not that they that run in the race all run indeed, but one receiveth the prize. So run that you may obtain. And everyone that striveth for the mastery refraineth himself from all things. And they indeed that they may receive a corruptible crown. So in his day, he was referring to probably something similar to the Olympic Games where they would receive a crown. Uh, the winner would receive a, a crown. But we, he says, as Christians, Catholics, we are 
striving for that incorruptible crown, the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him, as St. James says in his epistle. So St. Paul goes on in this passage, he says, I therefore so run, not as at an uncertainty. I so fight, not as one beating the air, but I chastise my body and bring it into subjection, lest perhaps when I have preached to others, I myself should become a castaway. So it's just a good reminder for all of us that, uh, you know, we can never give up the fight. Uh, there's, it's That's a very strong verse against the Protestant notion of once saved, always saved. Well, I said this prayer you know, I'm in God's friendship now. It doesn't really matter what I do, uh, not according to St. Paul, <clears throat> which ironically is the one that they look to for their uh, once saved, always saved and faith alone and all of that other, all of those other heresies. Mm. And it's also uh, very appropriate that Holy Mother Church places those verses before us on Septuagesima Sunday, since Septuagesima, as Brian described last week, is really a, a pre-Lent getting us in getting us ready for the, the great season of Lent of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. So uh, kind of as a, a segue, we do have a video clip that we want to show you that uh, speaking of living a penitential life, a, a life of prayer and fasting, uh, perhaps no other order in church history has exemplified this as much as the Carmelites. <clears throat> and as we've reported on this show before, there's a particular monastery in Pennsylvania. Well, there's a few of them, mm -hmm. traditional Catholic Carmelite monasteries who follow the original rule of St. Teresa of Avila. This one's in Fairfield and they have been persecuted, um, you know, under the pretext of apostolic visitations and mm -hmm. such, but there's a, a new documentary that's been produced that it looks excellent. I haven't had a chance to watch the whole thing, but we're going to just play a, the first couple minutes of it to give you a flavor of it and encourage you to to watch it on your own. It's produced by a, an outfit called, let's see, well, I, I, here we go. Yeah, Luke, Luke's Veritatis Media is the name of the, the YouTube okay. channel. So Brian can go ahead and play that clip. Would you dedicate your entire life to prayer, forego conveniences, close yourself off from the world? The monastic life has always been countercultural, but perhaps that has never been more true than in the 21st century. Arguably, there has never been a time in human history when there has been more noise and distractions attacking and invading our space. One can imagine the shock a young woman goes through when entering a cloistered monastery which meticulously follows the constitutions originally written in the 16th century. Yet, there is one such monastery of Carmelite nuns which seems to be flourishing and attracting young women from all over the world. These women seek a spiritual life deeply rooted in tradition. Perhaps what is most stunning is that this particular monastery has taken the idea of counterculture up a notch. They shun the use of electricity, running water, and many other modern conveniences, a perfect example of living off the grid. We were granted permission from their mother superior to enter the monastery and create this documentary. However, 
In the strictest adherence to their constitutions, we could not film any of the nuns. We witnessed a glimpse of their life from their eyes and were privileged to interview a few of them. We spoke with their families, former novices, clergy, and community members, all of whom helped us capture the joyful mystery that attracts so many to this monastery. So it looks like a, the documentary is very well done, very professional. So I look forward to watching watching it in full. It should be very edifying viewing, especially. Yes, it does. It does. It does look like a, a well done, and and it's really. It may seem a little strange. Why would a, a Carmel be doing this right now? But I think they need to get a message out because of the persecution, yes. because of what's going on. So and they all. I mean, even prior to the persecution, they're in the. They were in the midst of a major building campaign. They're trying to build, you know, they have, they're booming with vocations. They need more space to house them. So they are building, a, you know, in a very traditional manner, brick by brick, um, a new monastery building, not, you know, not, it's a monastery meant to last for the ages. So they definitely need support. Yes. Yes. So turning to our stories, then we have uh, a lot of interesting developments this week. The first one uh, is is one you may not have noticed because you may have seen a headline about it, but it doesn't seem that important. I, I actually think these will turn out to be uh, two important events. So the Pope issued two letters, motu proprio, and that just means it's a law coming directly from the Pope. It doesn't go through one of the congregations. So it's not a document coming from them. It's from the Pope kind of directly on his own authority is what that means. And it's making two major changes to the governance of the church. So again, the three powers of to, to sanctify, to teach, and to govern. So the Pope does govern the church and may can, you know, change, alter laws that are capable of change. Uh, and he does these, but they really offer an interesting insight into why they're going. And I think as you hear a little about them, ask the question, why now? Why are these being done now? So the first one is pursuant to a motu proprio fidem servare, and it restructures the congregation for the doctrine of the faith. Now, remember the last time a major restructuring of that CDF happened was when the Ecclesia Dei Commission was merged in and then destroyed. That was a prelude to Traditionis Custodis a couple of years later. I just re remember that fact, right? Because uh, I think it's I think it's somewhat telling. So uh, he goes on in explaining what he's about to do. Um, and he um, talks a little bit about the history. He, he actually remembers that it used to come from um, uh, the Holy Office. He actually refers right. to the old. Uh, yeah, the, old, the original restructuring was Paul under Paul VI, the original demolition. Yes. Yes. And he says, uh, but he, Paul VI did this, John Paul II did that, and now I'm going to establish the following. So he says, the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith consists of now, he's splitting it in two two parts, sections, doctrinal and disciplinary. Each will be coordinated by a different secretary who will assist the prefect. Now, again, you may be thinking, this doesn't sound, you know, what's, what's that all about? I mean, that doesn't sound that important. Well, it is significant. Why? Because before the CDF had under one auspice, doctrine and discipline. Why? Because doctrine and discipline follow each other. What you believe determines what you uh, do, how you, how act, you behave, yeah. how you behave. And so they weren't separate. They weren't segregated. But if you remember his entire approach for the past, um, 
you know, whatever's been seven, seven, eight years of his pontificate, going on nine know, years, going on nine years of his pontificate, is to cleave those apart, right? To separate doctrine from praxis. Going to Morris Letizia. Oh yeah, yes, we affirm the doctrine, but we're going to like allow you know people to go to communion anyway. That we're going to have them separate. So I think that that is really significant. It really fits with his whole approach. Yeah, yeah, you can pay lip service more or less to the doctrine. But just like do what you want anyway. Bless these couples, do this, let, let divorcees, et cetera. And that really goes uh, thoroughly with his, um, his, his thoughts. So I do worry that the separation of these two is done for a very particular uh, reason. And that is to separate these two. What can he do now? Again, the congregation of the doctrine of faith is usually even seen as more conservative. Again, air quotes around that because obviously they're all a bit liberal modernists, but more conservative than other parts of the Vatican. And it's been kind of slowing things down. We know Francis was upset when the CDF issued their document to the German bish bishops and priests saying, stop this blessing homosexual relationships. That's going to end. And he, he didn't like that. He undid everything he could to undermine it. So now he can kind of pull it apart, create two new people that he can have there, uh, one is just, I'm just with the discipline. I'm just with the doctrine. And it is again, a lot of speculation that this is done so we can put more liberal people in those, um, uh, secretary places and get the disciplinary one particularly, uh, to, to sort of push the envelope. So again, right. cleaving doctrine and discipline is really important. Now let me read part two, the doctrinal section through the doctrinal office deals with matters pertaining to the promotion and protection of the doctrine of faith and morals. It also encourages studies aimed at increasing the understanding and transmission of the faith in the service of truth. Nope, sorry, didn't say truth. In the service of evangelization, so that its light may be a criterion for understanding the meaning of existence especially in the face of questions posed by the progress of sciences and the development of society. So hold on. The Holy Office was supposed to be the protector of the faith, the pit right. bull that was, we're here to protect the faith. Here he's saying, no, 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 you're here to develop doctrine, to come up with new ideas in the service of evangelization. So again, evangelization should follow the faith. Here's the faith. Do you want it? Here he's getting it the other way around. Our goal is to evangelize. We need to kind of like study the faith to fit it into our evangelization plans, as well as the progress of modern sciences and development of society. Again, that to me was loaded language for the homosexual question because it's, I think yeah. doctrine's got to update because now science and society tells us we've misunderstood this all the time. And now we understand it better and we need to change the doctrine. I think that is a loaded statement. The doctrine doesn't drive science, drive and, and control and limit, but it follows it and has to accommodate itself to it. That's what that number two paragraph is saying. I think the other big problem is that the, the word evangelization to Pope Francis does not mean, doesn't have the traditional meaning of yeah. go out and make disciples of all nations. It just means dialogue, basically. You know, Speaking of dialogue, yes, yeah. <laughs> that comes up because the other thing the CDF and formerly Holy Office used to do was to call in theologians or, or priests, like Hans Kuhn, who had left the reservation, right, who were promoting heresy and saying, this is banned. You can't teach this. This is against the faith. So he refers to that. Listen to what this is. With regard to faith and morals, the section shall arrange for the examination of documents to be published by the dicasteries, the Roman Curia 
as well as writings and opinions which appear problematic for the correct faith, hmm. encouraging dialogue with their authors <laughs> and proposing suitable remedies. So not banning them because they're heretical, but proposing dialogue. Again, this I see a real weakening of uh, the whole the So whole in other doctrinal... words, discussing with criminals what they think their sentence should be. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about the disciplinary section and, and just it's going to handle disciplinary matters. We don't have enough time to really talk about the, any details in there. Um, and then notice, but it's supposed to be the courts, right? It's supposed to punish people. What he draws out to this end, the section promotes appropriate training initiatives offered by the congregation to ordinaries and legal practitioners in order to foster a correct understanding and application of the canonical norm. So we need more corporate training. And again, it's, it's okay, but in like a one-page thing, that's what he emphasizes, corporate, corporate training. So that's his first change. Again, he splits the CDF into praxis and doctrine, undermines the doctrine because it's got to be at the service of his version of evangelization. Uh, troubling. Okay, next one. He makes some very precise changes to canon law. There's some changes of very few words, but I think there's a, a big significance here. Um, and he lets, I think he really signals in the opening of this motu proprio, uh, which is uh, competencias uh, quasdom de cernere, which uh, was only out in Italian for a while, but the English version is finally out. He says, the assignment of certain areas of competence with regard to the provisions of the codes intended to safeguard unity of discipline in the universal church and executive power in the local churches and ecclesiastical institutions corresponds to the dynamic of ecclesial communion and enhances proximity. A healthy decentralization can only foster that dynamic without prejudice to the hierarchical dimension. And, and again, so he's signaling here, this is pushing his on envelope on decentralizing the church, weakening the power of the Pope, except remember the one place it doesn't. That's why he's got the hierarchical dimension when it comes to traditional mass. Now, I want to keep that in mind because remember his whole focus on univer unity, unity in this paragraph. What's his only thing you have to be unified with? That's the Novus Ordo. You can be as disunified in the way you celebrate the Novus Ordo as you want, but you need to do it. These changes, I think, are in anticipation of the coming persecution. So why do I think most of these changes were done? To set up things that are going to need to be dealt with as traditional institutes and orders are persecuted. I think that's the, the, the signal in this first paragraph, that it's about forcing that unity through apparent decentralization. Because remember, traditionalis custodis. We're apparently decentralizing by re restoring to the local bishop all the local bishop's authority over the mass that he's supposed to have that poor Benedict, you know, bad Benedict took away when really what he did was take away all the authority of the bishop. You can't have a pontifical. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do that. Right. right. Remember that dynamic. I think like this Soviet is Soviet it. disinformation. It's the exact opposite of what he says. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, he then, let me just go through and explain to you what I mean by a couple of, you know, that's not all that's going on. There's a couple other things going on. So first what's going on is making it easier for bishops to undermine traditional practices. So what does he do with respect to a handful of items? So the first one, uh, is on the erection of interdiocesan seminaries and statutes. 
before, if you wanted to set up these interdiocesan seminaries, you had to get the approval of the Holy See. He literally changed that one word to confirmation. And you might be thinking, what's the big deal, right? Well, it is a big deal because approval means the Holy See has to look at this and say, nothing wrong here. Confirmation is just like, think of confirmation in the Senate of Supreme Court justices. Who picks them? The president. There's a limited role for confirmation. It just sort of puts the stamp on it. Now, again, there's a little room to intervene if it's really bad. And, and you know, a lot of senators disagree. But more or less, it's the president's choice. And you just sort of have to go along with it. Uh, that's not exactly you know what's going on here. But it's an analogy maybe to help you. It shifts the focus from the Holy See to the bishops to kind of do their own thing with uh, programs of priestly formation established by Episcopal conferences. And what's this getting at? Getting more flexibility for them to do experimental things. It's a little easier hurdle now to get over. And then there's a, a bunch of these that that come on um, and, and that they change this ap ap uh, approval to confirmation. Then the next set of changes, I think, are what are all anticipation of the coming persecution. So one of them relates to incardination, a little change made there, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it's to the code that ends, the part of the code that this is to stop unattached or transient clerics are not allowed at all. Yeah. Why is he tinkering with this again? Because that we may be having an influx of those. People that are expelled from monasteries, priests, because they won't, they won't go along with Tritionis Custodes, right? And he's, he's again, um, setting up that who can be incardinated uh, only people that are the old traditional categories. And then he adds societies endowed with the faculty given by the Holy See to incarnate them. So he adds societies, public uh, uh, clerical associations. What I find interesting about that is that was always the claim of Society of St. Pius X of why they were not just subject to the local bishop. They were formed as a public association of the clergy by the Bishop of Switzerland. But then the Holy See grant them permission to incardinate clergy. They gave them that permission, but there was a little bit of this mismatch in canon law. Okay, why are they doing that? Again, if it's the corralling thesis, and we'll talk about this a minute in a later, later story, maybe this is setting it up for everybody who's thrown out. You can all go over to this. You know, you can go seek incarnation there because that's where you can go. I just wonder. It's an interesting canon to tinker with and specifically to address the situation that affected the society in the 1970s to, to touch that part about if the Holy See gives you a right to incarnate, that get, means you're not, you know, a, a, a uh, transient cleric. Um, the other one goes to um, uh, when people are ex excloistrated. So exclustration, that's the process for people in a monastery uh, who have taken formal, final, solemn vows. You're there for life. Well, there is a process where if there are, quote, grave reasons, right, you can be allowed, you've given permission to leave, right? Uh, again, if these monasteries are going to be forced to the Novus Ordo, there's probably going to be a bunch of people who refuse, I hope, nuns and priests who refuse the new, the new uh, divine office and the new mass. And he's tinkering a little bit with, they can just be sent out now for five years for a, quote, grave cause. Uh, again, is he making it, setting it up for the bishops to make it easier for the bishops to exclutrate, get these people out of the formerly traditional monasteries as they transition over to make it a little easier process? 
I, I think it's an interesting question. Um, again, that's uh, the other one um, that that's uh, that's touched with there. And again, I'm not going to go through all the um, uh, details about individually temporary provast, and there's a few details there. But what I see, I see two trends in just a few of the examples I've taught, shown you. One, an appearance of giving more authority to diocese and bishops, which I think the threat is we're going to confirm anything you do that's in the right direction, right? Like we're giving you be experimental by shifting that approved to confirmation. And number two, we're tinkering with a bunch of canons because we're going to get ready for a big flux of priests leaving institutes of apostolic life and monasteries. Now, again, this is my speculation. This is my reading of it. But why now? And why the same day as the CDF restructuring? This seems he's supposed to be redoing the whole curia. Why didn't it all come out as part of that? There seems to be some underlying motive, and they're the two motives that I, I read in, in these changes. Yes. So just real briefly, I see in the, the comments section, someone asked out uh, a link to that uh, documentary film about the Fairfield Carmelites. And yet, yes, I can. I will post a, a link in our video description so you'll, you're able to find that. Somebody said they can't find it on YouTube. Uh, but before we segue into our next story about the uh, the meeting between francis yes. and father pagliarani just wanted to mention so last week we very briefly touched upon a, a, a vatican symposium on the theology of the priesthood yes. which did start today i haven't been able to find a whole lot of reporting on it other than francis giving and like a keynote address at the beginning of it about his uh 52 years of priesthood but um I was just taking a look at the program and it, it doesn't look promising. <laughs> so no, yeah, the uh, program maybe, did not look promising. <laughs> okay, maybe next week we'll have a little more information to share with you about, yes. about it. Just, but just to name a couple of uh, titles of the talks that I saw that were kind of like, uh, let me see one of them. Oh, here we go. Cardinal Kurt Koch, uh, who's in charge of the interreligious dialogue uh, what is that? A pontifical council, I think. So he's talking about ecumenical challenges of the question of priesthood. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and also somebody's going to be speaking about women ministry status questionis, the status of the question. Well, we know well, if it's it closed, why do you need to ask it? Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I think we may uh, report on this next week, but it, it's yes. it's it's looking not good. So, yeah. Well, as Matt said, our second story really, I think, is maybe potentially related. And so this, the only place I've seen this reported extensively is uh, Le Salon Biège, which is a, a French uh, blog, uh, tradition, I think, re uh, uh, related to traditional issues. And it mentioned that uh, the Pope has met the Superior General, the fraternity of uh, the priestly fraternity of St. Pius X, uh, Father David Palirani. And uh, it says, you were asking about the date. It says it's uh, we, uh, 8th of February is when they met. Oh, okay. So that was um, a few days. Yeah, 8th of February. So just last week. Uh, and But it does say that um, the U.S. district, the American district of the FSPX, uh, will be publishing a some kind of a statement, they predict, explaining about this. Now, again, I don't know how they know that. Uh, I have confirmed from a couple other independent sources that, this, yes, this meeting did take place. I, I haven't confirmed. I don't know for sure whether there will be a public statement about it. I, I understand there's some discussions about that today, about whether what and what should be said, if anything. Uh, but I have confirmed definitely, personally, with people that would know that this meeting did occur. 
now, we don't have a lot of information. So again, briefly, what, what might this say? Again, the timing is interesting. Everything we've been told is that the visitations, the persecution of the formerly Ecclesia Dei communities will begin sometime in February. A date of Ash Wednesday has been given uh, by several, again, inside sources as a date that a letter may be arriving or information may be. And just sort of on the eve of about to persecute them, he meets with Dom David Pagliarani, the superior general of the 10th. Why now? Right? He's, he's met with Bishop Follet previously, who was the former superior, but he has never yet. But, uh, Father Pagliarani has been uh, superior general now for three, uh, coming up on, uh, well, three years, three and a half years. Yeah. Why now at this moment in time? It's interesting. And I don't know all we can speculate. Is it to say I'm coming after you next? Maybe, right? When I'm done with the Ecclesi Day, you're next. I, I don't know. Again, that would contradict many of the things right. that Pope Francis said to Bishop Fillet that we know publicly. He told him once, Bishop Fillet asked him, are you going to excommunicate us? And he said, don't worry. I'm never going to, I would never do that to you. Now, uh, yeah. he doesn't have a lot of principles. So, but but it, it would seem to contradict his benevolent attitude toward the society. Or mm. is it the corral thesis again? Does he basically say, hey, you guys better get ready. I'm going to come down hard on these people. They may be knocking at your door. You decide what you want to do. Um, maybe it was a warning. I don't know. Again, maybe we'll find out from the statement uh, if they issue one. But it, it, it is kind of an interesting timing, just like these legal changes occurring uh, at the this exact same time. So uh, we'll keep our eyes open. Again, if anybody hears anything, uh, let me know. Uh, about the, the Ecclesia Day Institute's getting letters or getting noticed, nothing. There's just been predictions so far. But we do have yet another link to this story, which will be our final story uh, on another update to Tritionis Custodes uh, at the end. Yes. All right. So uh, briefly, we're going to transition into the civil sphere. As we have the past couple of weeks, we've been reporting on the uh, updates on the Freedom Convoy uh, in Canada, which uh, start we published um, a good article by Kennedy Hall, kind of a reflection on, he's, he is Canadian, so reflecting on the significance of this movement at this time in history for Canada. So you look for that in the, the upcoming March newspaper. So as you'll recall, the Freedom Convoy, you know, several trucker convoys started from, you know, in the west part of the country from British Columbia and also uh, from the city of Vancouver. Um, and then converged on in Ottawa, the the national capital of Canada, on uh, the weekend of Ju or excuse me, January 28th and 29th. So this has been going on for a few weeks now, and the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, a, a notorious globalist disciple <laughs> of Klaus Schwab, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and I, I'm kind of ignorant of uh, Canadian history but i didn't realize that his father served as prime yes Minister his father well, did until, yes until recently yes and that ties into the story actually so justin trudeau on monday of this week announced that he was invoking uh, something called the emergencies act uh, sometimes known as the emergency um yeah i think technically is the it's the emergencies act and actually kennedy hall over at lifesite news wrote a helpful kind of explainer article on Monday saying everything you need to know about Trudeau's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act, explaining what it is and such. So he, he explains the EA replaced the older War Measures Act yeah. in 1988. The War Measures Act was 
uh, I think instituted in 1914 in reference to the First World War. So this new act replaces the War Measures Act uh, in 1988. It is more limited in scope under the War Measures Act. As you can imagine, wartime activity was permitted. However, the EA is broader in its scope, applying to, quote, national threats outside of war and violent conflict. It is also more specific and limited in what uh, powers the government can use. Um, yeah, and that, that old name of the law that was essentially revised gives you a sense what this is about, right? This is about uh, – and they really enacted when they were afraid that there might be an invasion of Canada – uh, th this is like when your country is invaded by a foreign power, civil society is collapsing, and essentially what it allows is the government to suspend some civil liberties, to sort of say here at normal times, and, and again, it's not so martial the circumstances have thing. to be very extreme yes. in order for this to yes. apply. And it gives the federal government more power to over the police, over the military, to stop to simple public protests, free speech, things that you could do normally. Again, in that kind of, you're invaded by a foreign country. Well, this all fits Trudeau's narrative because he keeps referring to the people exercising their peaceful right to make their voices heard as occupiers. Right. So his whole theory is they're an occupying army. This so illegal occupation is the narrative. Illegal yes. occupation. Illegal occupation. So again, this is meant to be declared to protect Canadians against some external, primarily, threat. But he's declaring it against his own people, essentially. Right. right. I think we do. We have a, a video clip queued yes. up for yeah. So we can go ahead and play that, and we'll just hear it from the horse's mouth. After discussing with cabinet and caucus, after consultation with premiers from all provinces and territories, after speaking with opposition leaders, the federal government has invoked the Emergencies Act to supplement provincial and territorial capacity to address the blockades and occupations. Again, he's calling them occupations, like they're an occupying right. army, a bunch of truckers right. parking their trucks. Right. And they also are continuing to refer yes. to them as terrorists. The scope yeah. of these measures will be time-limited, geographically targeted, as well as reasonable and proportionate. I just want to remind you there, time-limited, two weeks to stop the spread. Just remember that one. <laughs> this is what governments do, right? When they're about, you know, to unleash dictatorship. Oh, oh, right. this is just a limited measure for a while. Don't worry. And two years later, you're in the same place. Well, right. I, I actually just want to show, because I think this is a bit, you have, to, you have to laugh. I mean, this is serious. This is, he's basically declaring himself a dictator, uh, giving himself dictatorial right. Well, again, uh, and it gets powers. worse in that same press uh, conference. It yeah. does. So I just want to see this was the Babylon Bee. If you ever seen them, I think they're a great satire site. This was their response to what Trudeau did. If you can't see the screen, Trudeau reorganizes Canada into the first galactic empire for a safe and secure society. <laughs> <laughs> and it's got uh, Justin Trudeau dressed up like Emperor Palpatine. Uh, in the yes. Galactic Senate from the, you know, Revenge of the Sith, declaring his new great galactic empire. Uh, again, I think it was it was a perfect response because <laughs> it is, you know, that that is what he's really doing. He's declaring himself this little son of the king, a little dictator. Uh, and it's not just words. It, as the deputy prime minister yeah. went on to say, I mean, they're talking, they are invoking effective immediately, so effective Monday, Yes. If they think that you are, uh, if you're in Canada, you're supporting the convoy, the, the demonstration in any way, they've taken it upon themselves to 
have the power to to freeze your bank account, uh, to seize assets. I mean, this is very serious stuff. Yes. Yes. Uh, that while, they have. All the while claiming that their charter of rights, the equivalent of their constitution, is not being violated by any of that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Unbelievable. I mean, this is, you know, people criticize and talk about when Lincoln suspended habeas corpus during the Civil War, when there was an actual war going on. This goes way beyond, like this goes well beyond what Lincoln did uh, in the Senate, as bad as that was. This goes well beyond that. Uh, and again, for people, maybe you're sitting in America listening to this. Oh, well, that's Canada. That would never happen here. Well, we have the same provisions of our law, the Civil Forfeiture, civil, uh, uh, forfeiture Acts, that, are, 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 that if you are believed to be involved in criminal activity, they can seize any and all property money, anything in this country. So this is how he's done. He's basically maneuvered to declare the just exercise of their rights of free speech and assembly, a, a crime, criminal, illegal, which it's not. Now that it's illegal, now we can use these powers to seize assets connected to criminal activity. That's how they went after GoFundMe because they said it was funding crime, essentially. Right. And the deputy prime minister did specify explicitly in that press conference talking about crowdfunding sites uh, cracking yes. down on those, like basically shutting down the ability to crowdfund for such a, a a demonstration as the one that's been going on the last few weeks. Yes. And so we do have, here was the response of the acting leader of the opposition. So uh, over the sort of con- the weak need conservatives, lackluster opposition to Trudeau's two years of dictatorship, the conservative party did have a shakeup and, and they, their leader resigned. Uh, Ms. Bergman, uh, became the the leader so she hasn't that formally been sort of confirmed but she's the interim leader uh this was her let's take a little bit look at her response to the emperor's new declaration of his order 66 to hunt down the truckers conservatives want to see uh, an end to the blockades we want to see them ended peacefully and quickly uh, in a way that canadians feel that they've been listened to heard and respected by their prime minister We are concerned that the actions of the Prime Minister will not have that effect and, in fact, will have the opposite effect. Today, the Prime Minister announced that he will be uh, invoking the Emergencies Act. We have to take a look at what he's proposing and the rationale, and Conservatives will discuss it and uh, make a determination in terms of whether we will support it or not. At first blush, we are very concerned with what we see. First and foremost, if you look across the country, provinces are not in agreement with what the Prime Minister is proposing. He uh, has uh, said he has consulted, but there, there really is not collaboration or agreement. Alberta is opposed to it, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Quebec. So just pause there to make you understand what, what she's saying. So the way the, the Emergency Act works is the Prime Minister declares it, but then he has to go to Parliament uh, I think it was within a week or so, and get right. Parliament to sort of approve what he's done. So there's like a check, which you understand with these serious powers, there's a check on it. It's kind right. of like the War Powers Act uh, in the United States. If the president initiates a hostility, he has to go to Congress and get right. them to approve it. So she, that's what she's referring to. She said, well, because he hasn't actually presented. And when he does that, he say, here's how long it is. Here's our goals. Right. Has to explain it. So she's being a little cautious, saying, well, we'll look at it, but we're not. Don't be optimistic. We're not that in favor of it. But secondly, this is interesting because it parallels between church and state. Before he invokes the, the, the Emergencies Act, he has to talk to the essentially the equivalent of our governors, the head right. of each province, so like the governors, and, and consult with them. Hey, do we need to do this? 
And again, it doesn't say they have to. This gets back to like our approval confirmation. What's going on? He 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 consults with them. She says she has evidence that all, most of them said, "Don't do this. We don't need this. This is a bad idea." And he does it anyway. Again, this is how dictators like Francis, like right. Trudeau, work. They pretend, "Oh, I'm consulting. Oh, I'm going to have a survey. I'm going to have a questionnaire. Then I'm going to do what I want because I don't really care what you say." And that's really what she's saying. You consulted them and then totally ignored them when they said this is a bad. Uh, a bad idea. Uh, but essentially, I think that's kind of the, the gist of uh, what she's doing. Uh, it, it, not a very fiery, I mean, I would have expected you know, more outrage, uh, a little more cautious, but she is saying, look, this seems to be a sledgehammer against a fly, right? right <laughs> Invoking exactly. this. I, I mean, it's. And I did watch a little bit of the debate uh, this morning yeah. in the uh, House of Commons, the Canadian Parliament, and that's what one, I forget the member's name, but member of parliament was saying who has practiced law for, I think he said like 14 years. And, you know, what was the first step taken in response to this situation? Crickets. What was the second step? Crickets. So in other words, he's let this go and go and go. And he refuses to talk to anybody who disagrees with him. The offers have been made and he's turned them down. He's ignored them. And then he comes out with the nuclear option, essentially. Yes. And I saw the other day the truckers had a little press conference and they had with them an elderly uh, lawyer who's, I think, retired now, who was one of the people that wrote the Emergencies Act back when they changed from the old War Power Act. Um, He he was the author of it. And they have him on and he's saying, this is not what was meant. He said, and this act has never been invoked in the history of its use. And it's for this like this was never what we envisioned when we wrote it. And again, right. that's from well, that's the, the I spoke earlier about uh, his father being prime minister. Yes. So interestingly, he, his father was the only prime minister in Canadian history to invoke the previous uh, yes. act, the act. war powers back in, I think it was 1970 in response to some actual terrorists, yes. uh, you know, like kidnapping politicians and threatening to murder them. They may even have done so. I don't remember. Yes. Um, and then Trudeau, you know, Jr. is the only one who's ever invoked the current Emergencies Act. So that's very interesting. It's Following a, in his father's it's, house, yes. <laughs> it's, it's a family tradition. Well, and then the latest reports today is the massing of police. So hundreds of police and vehicles, or apparently the last I heard, massing in Ottawa uh, to go after the truckers. And the truckers right. were preparing i saw a little video where they were telling everybody okay wherever you're parked go pay your parking for the day again they're trying to do all this legally right right uh get yourself ready they're coming now i haven't seen any reports since this morning on whether the police swapped down but the police for a few days since he invoked this have been going around with pamphlets they're on the internet you can see them uh they uploaded them basically saying you're gonna face dire consequences we're coming at you uh, more or less is what they say uh, very soon. This is your last chance, right? Again, he's executed Order 66, and he's sending in the Canadian Mounties against uh, the 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 truckers who and their younglings who he threatened. I mean, it's just it's unbelievable. It could be a movie if it if it weren't real. <laughs> so, I mean, before we move on to our final story, just to re you know, let's recall what this is all about. It's a group of truckers, blue collar workers, the ones that we average people depend on for our supply chain saying enough is enough and the vac you know the jab mandates if yes if trudeau would do that if they if he would even listen to the conservative party in his country who wanted to you know 
as a sign of good faith to the truckers, draw up a plan to, to bring an end to the lockdowns and the mandates by the end of February, then they that would be a negotiation point that the truckers, as I understand it, might be open to. Uh, he refuses everything. All, and he just keeps repeating the party line, the rhetoric, go get the jab. Uh, we're all tired of the pandemic, paying lip service to, you know, everybody's tired of this. So we just need to keep keep fighting and yes. blah, 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 blah. He, it's, it's really hey, pathet- it, it's pathetic to hear him try to talk off the cuff because he's yeah. so inarticulate. It's horrible. <laughs> and he does always try to redirect. He's like, everybody's tired of the pandemic. And with the truckers saying, no, we're not tired of the pandemic. We're tired of your tyrannical rules that yeah. you use the pandemic as an excuse for. It's yes. not, I mean, again, he's just, he's pathetic. But in any event, let's add on a positive note. We have a real yes. positive story um, and really two parts of the main part. Uh, is, as Matt mentioned, Harrison Butker, who's the place kicker for the Kansas City Chiefs, who won, uh, was on the winning team last year when they won the Super Bowl. Uh, he conducted a, a, written, a written interview with Catholic News Agency, which is published, and we'll quote from it in a minute. But I just want to give you a little bit of background about him, because in 2019, I think it was EWTN, did a little video uh, interview or documentary about him. Yes. Uh, and about his life and he how he came to find to, to be kind of uh, reinvigorated in his Catholic faith and then found the traditional Latin mass. I just want to play a little clip from that 2019 video so you can see him and just see a little bit about him. After training, Harrison changes, but not into what you'd expect. He puts on a cassock and serves at Latin Mass, and Harrison feels his newfound faith is what has given him purpose in life. I've come to. And again, I, I'd recommend the 2019 video. It's it's uh, really worth listening to, and it's watching. embedded in the the CNA report. CNA, I'll yes. include a link to that so, so that you get both yeah. two for the price of one. <laughs> yes. So, what's the topic of this new interview? It's on Traditionis Custodes, um, and uh, the first question they ask is, "Why are you speaking out about the restrictions on the traditional Latin Mass right now?" And what he says is really interesting. He says, "I think God has definitely given me a platform. He's given me a voice for a lot of people." that aren't able to voice their opinions. So he's being honest, saying, God has given me a lot. He's made me famous. I mean, he's what he's saying. And there's a lot of people who nobody's listening to, and I want to speak for them about the Latin Mass. So again, really showing that sense of responsibility for someone uh, who knows uh, that they have been given a great gift from God and have to use it for God's good. And he ends that by saying, uh, he's talking about those people who uh, feel like they're being persecuted. And the, the interviewer yes. picks up on that, says, you use the word persecution. Is that really how you feel? I do. He says, <laughs> I feel like I'm, uh, I, you know, he says, I, I really do. I feel like I'm being uh, not welcome in the church right. for wanting to go to the Latin mass and for wanting to have a traditional confirmation for my children. And, and throughout he's very this new to tradition. So he's like, he just found this treasure. And I'm sure he feels like, why are you trying to steal this from me? I just found it, you know? Yes, uh, definitely. And again, it is pretty new. And he's really gotten uh, you know, very enthused about it. In addition to Kansas City, I know he goes up to the Benedictines, where I think I've mentioned my sister-in-law is a nun. He serves mass up there for the nuns sometimes. Uh, again, he's just really thrown himself into this. Once his children, and that's important. He's not just focused on the mass but also on the sacraments. That'll come up a little later. So then they say, if you could talk to Pope Francis, what would you say? Holy Father, all the Catholics, he says, that I've been around, that have a devotion to the traditional Latin Mass and the traditional sacraments, they want to be saints. 
They want to get their children to heaven. They're not trying to have this big revolt against the church. They're not denying the papacy. They are being Catholic. They want to be saints. They're doing it to the best of their ability. And get a really a heartfelt response by, by, uh, uh, by this, this gentleman. Um, it makes them feel like they're outcasted, he goes on to say, like they're being persecuted. And from my, my own experience, these are just people that understand they are sinners. They want to have access to the sacraments. Notice he's really key on, keen on that. Why is that important? Because he does go on to say, when it first came out, what did you think? And this is interesting. He said, well, I first thought it wouldn't affect me. And he says, I go to Institute of Christ the Kings and the, the fraternity of St. Peter. I, like this, won't, this is not about me. And then he said, then I realized it is about me, that this could threaten the ability of my children to receive the sacraments. And I had to rethink everything I thought I knew about right. the extraordinary, the ordinary form. He's like this. And it was really interesting to hear his just sort of um, thought process. Um, and he says at the end, and I do believe that they should be allowed, the traditional sacraments, and not taken away. Of course not, because the Novus Ordo sacraments are so new, and they are different, and so many things have been taken out. Again, this is somebody who's pretty new to tradition, and he already sees with such a Catholic sense. And then he goes yes. into, so take baptism, for example. And he goes through some of the examples in baptism that he's really studying. He really knows what's what's going going on here. And then he beautifully talks about how what brought him to traditional mass. He tells this story. It's very similar. I think you'll see a lot of similarities to many of our stories uh, coming over. Uh, and he says, you believe that traditional mass is bringing young people back. And again, he talks about that uh, because the traditional mass is so countercultural in a good sense that our culture is so bad <laughs> that we're, you have to be countercultural to it, to, to, uh, you know, do the right thing. Uh, then they ask a little bit about altar serving, how he got involved in that. Uh, and, and again, a real, you know, uh, uh, uh beautiful, uh, response and explanation there. So overall, uh, really, it's a great thing to see, right? A, a, a very a famous person who's probably got a lot, you know, a lot of money. Got not even thirty years old. I not even like thirty 26. years old, right? This is from a worldly point of view. Like the guy's got it all, uh, but but here he is. What is he using that for? For the glory of God and to speak to help those uh, who are being persecuted by their father, by by the Pope. Uh, yes. So really, really encouraging uh, uh, interview, which I recommend. And for our last bit of good news, Traditionis Custodis. Uh, now, again, I've only seen this reported by uh, Gloria TV. I don't know if you've seen any more sources, but again, they're, they're, they're I think, fairly legitimate. So I'm not downing it, but this seems to be pretty, uh, pretty just uh, not, not well known uh, that the ordination to the subdiaconate has occurred in Denton for the priestly fraternity of St. Peter at Our Lady of Guadalupe Seminary on February 12th. That's where I got uh, the February 12th date from. Yes, I I think that's my yes. Yeah. So uh, this, this ceremony of the ordination to uh, the subdiaconate of five men uh, who took this step, this great step towards major orders, into major orders, uh, did occur. Uh, it, uh, now, there's some interesting things about it. Number one, the report, again, according to Gloria TV, said it was a private ceremony only open to the family and close invited guests of the five ordinance. So that's interesting. In the past, you know, it's open. Anybody can come to, to these. Yes. Why did they have to do it privately? And then two, who performed the, um, ordin the uh, ordinations? 
it was a retired bishop, uh, Bishop Robert Finn, formerly of St. Joseph of uh, uh, Kansas City, St. Joseph. It's a little interesting tie to those stories there, Kansas City. Yes. Uh, bishop Robert Finn. Now, you may remember him, again, just in a full disclosure, uh, he was the bishop. He's pretty young to be retired, right. but he was forced to retire because he was convicted of a misdemeanor crime uh, relating to not reporting um, uh, abuse, some abuse, alleged abuse situations. Uh, and he was convicted, again, not of a felony, of a misdemeanor, and he resigned as bishop as a result of that. So he really has been, you know, nothing to do. Uh, now, it's kind of, again, what's interesting about that? Who's the only bishop that's willing to do this? is a bishop that there's not much more that can happen to him, right? He already, he's lost his diocese. He's like a bishop without a, uh, uh, you know, without a, a job, without anything to do, is, mm -hmm. is you know, again, able to, to take this risk. So happy for these five young men. Again, they've probably sweated it out the past few months. Am I going to be able to uh, uh, be uh, ordained? That's great. I will, before we get too excited, give a little note. Um, I think the real test will be the priestly ordinations, because if you'll remember that the hot summer in the 70s, uh, when they forbade Archbishop Lefebvre from ordaining. So in 75 into 76, right. when they said no ordinations, he did the minor orders. He did subdiaconate, nothing, no reaction from Rome. It was the priestly ordinations of June 29th that triggered the suspensia ad divinis, which was invalid, but that they purported. Again, why? The explanation was, well, we don't even recognize that anyway. That whole subdeacon thing doesn't exist anymore. So it wasn't really anything. That was the, the, the sort of, we didn't pay attention to that because that's just play acting is what we're trying to say. <laughs> so again, I, would, I think it's a good sign. It's a good sign that a bishop, even if it's just a retired one, stood up uh, to, to help them out. But the real test, I think, will be those priestly ordinations. That's when the Vatican will take notice and when yes. uh, the, the, the uh, uh, things will get interesting. So, and uh, bishops will have to make a decision sooner rather than later because the, the seminaries, like the priestly fraternity, yes. they have tons of vocations. So surely there are men who are either close to being ready or are currently ready for ordination. Oh, yeah, I'm sure there's men for this so. year. They had deacons ordained. I forget. I saw the number. Five or six are deacons ordained last year. Yeah. So, again, unless some crazy thing happened to those, they'd be like, I'm really sick or something. Uh, they would be scheduled for an ordination this, uh, this, this May or June. Yes. So, again, an interesting development is all I can say. We'll have to keep our eye on it and see what happens. Yes. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our stories today. I'm glad we had a really positive story to end on. Uh, and we commend Harrison Butker and hope that God continues to bless his efforts to get the message out, to use that mm -hmm. platform that he's been given. Yes. So if you've enjoyed our, our show today, we do ask for your support and uh, a thumbs up, a like, and a share on social media. Help us spread the word and grow our audience so that we can reach more souls with this content. And ultimately, if you enjoy our free content, we do ask for your support in the form of a subscription to our monthly publication, Catholic Family News. Visit our website, catholicfamilynews.com, for all the details on how to subscribe. And with that, we will close by uh, invoking Our Lady, as we always do, and praying together a Hail Mary. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. 
Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Eternal Father, offer the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and all the instruments of his holy passion. Thou may put division in the camp of thy enemies, for as thy beloved Son has said, a kingdom divided against itself shall fall. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you again, all of you, for, for watching. Those who watched the uh, uh, the, the podcast and those who again continue to join us live. Uh, I see Mary Julie. Nice to see you, Harris. Uh, again, uh, Ethna Murphy. I, I think you're a new a new uh, uh, live viewer. So thank you, uh, everyone, for for joining. Please do like and send this around. And tell uh, a friend to join you next week for the yes, live stream. Yes, <laughs> tell a friend to join you. Say, I'll see you in the CFN live stream. That's right. So we wish you all a wonderful Quinquagesima Sunday. Um, and uh, we hope you have a great week. And we will hopefully see you next week. Yes. God bless you. Uh-huh.